You're listening to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. The Australian federal budget dropped last night, and we're going to dive straight in to see if we can make sense of it. This episode, our host Sally Warhaft is joined by veteran political journalist Kerry O'Brien. Uh, Kerry O'Brien, of course, needs no introduction. Uh, so, uh, you know, except to say how much I and I know uh, so many people miss him uh, as a constant on our on our screens on the 7.30 report late line, every free-to-air network that has ever existed in this country. So please give him a warm lunchtime welcome. So look, let's, um, let's begin with your first impressions of this budget that, you know, clearly sought to take a few free hits of all the people we love to hate, the banks and the stoners and New Zealand students and... And Australian students. And Australians. <laughs> oh, yeah, the foreigners and the non-Australians. Well, uh, I, I was at a, a function last night and so, for my sins... I was uh, leaning up against the pillows of my hotel bed watching Scott Morrison on my iPad at about 11.30 last night. And uh, as that unfolded, it just seemed more and more to me like an election year budget. And uh, and in a sense it is, except what it is, uh, is the budget to save Malcolm Turnbull. So, so that he is there when the next election comes around. <laughs> And you might remember in 1988 was the, uh, was the budget where Paul Keating declared he was bringing home the bacon. This is the budget to save Malcolm's bacon. This is, this is the one that he hopes will allow him to survive for the next year and then the year after uh, to call an election where he hoped, you know, in his terms, this would be the scenario, has if not a stunning victory, then at least enough that allows him to continue in his party. And... Uh, uh, in those terms, it's interesting. It's a, a kind of, and this is all my um, my speculation, uh, but that uh, it's interesting that his back had to be against the wall for him to finally, uh, in a way, take on those people on the right edge of his own party that he seems to have been so fearful of since he became leader. You know, we're told that he stitched up a deal... Uh, with some of those on the right for their votes against Tony Abbott and in the process lost whatever conviction he had about being in politics and seemed to drift along and uh, uh, into the last election, paid a price for that. I've never seen uh, a political leader squander so much goodwill so quickly as he did. So that was my, that was my first sense. And then when you, when you look at all of the U-turns, you know, the U-turn on tax, uh, the U-turn on Gonski, the U-turn on Medicare. Uh, he was basically pulling the rug as best he could, he and Scott Morrison, uh, from under uh, the Labor Party. And in the process, it's going to be very interesting to see whether Bill Shorten can rise to the occasion. Because being honest, in the leadership stakes in this country, they do run a close race, don't they? He and Turnbull. <laughs> they do. Do you think uh, the strategy that... Uh, well, let's talk about your impressions of the strategy, of, mm. of, of what it was and whether or not you think it'll work for Turnbull. Uh, whether it works will, will depend uh, to a degree on how effectively uh, he and Morrison and the rest of the Cabinet are able to sell it. I mean, it's all right to have the headlines, you know, hit banks on the head, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and those headlines, they, they would have been ecstatic with the headlines, mm -hmm. largely, I would think. Um, I mean, it was interesting looking at, uh, at Murdoch's, the Murdoch Papers headlines, basically saying he's taken Labor's clothes. Um, I think that, uh, that the, the, the truth is that the right, the hard right, the kind of Abbott right, uh, the abets right, and I'm never quite sure how many they number, I'm not sure the Liberal Party knows how many they number, but, uh, but um, I'm not sure that there's anything they can really do because part of the reason that I was always puzzled as to why Turnbull had become so intimidated by the right was where else were they going to go? They had already determined uh, that Bishop wasn't up to it. Uh, you remember Bishop had shadow treasury and didn't last in the portfolio. 
made mistakes, was clearly out of a depth. Uh, Morrison, up to this moment, uh, has been seen to make a hash of, uh, uh, of the Treasury, and in fact both uh, Morrison and uh, Bishop burnt their uh, credit with the right by backing Turnbull in the leadership uh, challenge. And then there's Peter Dutton. <laughs> now, once upon a time, when I first heard rumours way back in the Howard years, or before the Howard years, uh, when, uh, when John Hewson was struggling as the leader of the Liberal Party, I heard a rumour that they were going to turn uh, to Alexander Downer. And, and I said to whoever was telling me, don't be nuts. They would not be so stupid as to do that. And three weeks later, he became leader. Mm. So I was wrong in my judgment uh, that they would be so nuts as to do it. I wasn't wrong in my assessment of his capacity as a leader, <laughs> as it turned out. And I think the same would be true of Dutton. Mm. So, so um, I still think that's the case. And I cannot imagine them returning to Abbott. It, uh, it's like a sort of snooker game, isn't it, where they've sort of potted potted enough balls to make you think that the reset might be effective. But how long does a sort of a bounce from a, a budget well, really it tend be, to... It, it depends how they pick it up. Mm. Um, I hate sporting analysis. I was going to say pick it up and run with it. <laughs> but uh, it, depends, it depends on how they go from here. Are they suddenly going to be so much more effective than they have been in the last 18 months? Uh, that remains to be seen. But... Um, uh, the thing that I find really depressing is that, is that the fact that there may be elements in this budget that are designed to benefit the country is running secondary uh, to personal political ambitions. And it has been that way on and off for some time now. You know, to me, Gillard's biggest mistake um, in her whole political career was, was uh, being a part of the push to knock over Kevin Rudd when she did. Uh, had she been prepared to wait, I believe the Prime Ministership would have been hers after that, sometime after that next election, and she may have been a better Prime Minister for it, but that was, that was a legacy that she never escaped from. And, and I, that, to me, was a case she would say otherwise, and she did say otherwise, but to me that was a case of somebody putting their political ambition ahead of the good of the party and the nation. And I think that that is very much the story now. If uh, we look at inequality as a you know, major issue, of course, in Australia, like all, well, all countries, mm. um, was there anything in this budget that you could see that addressed this in any kind of... There is a big um, global trend uh, in the developed world uh, of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and the gap widening. And uh, uh, there are more people... I mean, this, this, I can remember doing a program on this uh, for Lateline about 20 years ago, uh, this phenomenon where the middle was shrinking and people were tipping back into the working poor and the poor and some people were tipping up at the top end into the rich. Uh, but the middle was shrinking. And a part of the reason that the middle... And I haven't seen figures on that particular phenomenon recently, but I suspect that's still going on. And, uh, you know, you had this development from the 70s through the 80s and beyond of the working poor, which first showed up in America, and I think now happens here, where, where people earn a subsistence living with one job. One job's not enough. They're working two. There are two working in the household, and they might be working three jobs, jobs or possibly even four. In America, people who are going to jobs but sleeping in cars, in car parks, and uh, there was a very powerful program on the poor in America mm. that uh, Four Corners had on when I was there, which showed which th th this manifestation of a country that, to me, is just sinking further and further into dysfunction. So is there something fundamental in this budget that addresses that phenomenon? No, I don't see it. Um, uh, the fact that you're going to slug the banks... And, for, you know, this is the other thing about any budget these days. So just because something's set in stone in 2017, you know, May 9, 2017, doesn't mean it's still going to be there uh, on May 9, 2019. And the whole business of deficits, you know, the bullshit that gets pushed about deficits and surpluses, 
Every year for I think the last four years, counting this one now, Australia was going to return to surplus in its fourth year. And guess what? That's what it's going to do this time. Now, I didn't see a single critical, critical report. Mm. It was stated as a fact in so many newspaper reports this morning. We are going to return to surplus in 2021. Wacky do. Well, Any the, bets? The, the lie of that, and then there's the greater lie of, of just this assumption the good times are just always round the corner or coming back or... Um, You're talking about the, uh, the future years of growth. Yeah, the yeah. future years of growth and prosperity and uh, we've done our tough, tough years in Australia. Hard-working Australians have pushed their way through it and, um, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't take into account any facts of history. Yeah. Uh, it takes into account nothing to do with the world and the volatile world we live in. So, so here's, here's the Liberal government's fundamental that we were told going into the last election and it's one that they've repeated as a mantra ever since. Jobs and growth. Jobs and growth. Okay. Um, the whole nature of work is changing in front of our eyes. Part of the reason that so many people voted in complete disillusionment and fear and ignorance for Donald Trump is because they are people who have either lost jobs or are staring job instability in the face. Uh, they're, they're, they're led to blame globalism, whatever they think that means. They're led to blame trade deals between nations. They're led to blame the political establishment. And partly the political establishment is to blame because the political establishment is not standing up looking people in the eye and telling them the truth of what we are all facing. We are facing an era, a period into the indefinite future of enormous uncertainty. I, you know, what is, what is left to us that's certain? We've got 3D printing, which is revolutionising so many fronts, uh, the building trade and so on. We've got, we've got um, artificial intelligence. You know the Washington Post has now got a robot that is writing stories? I mean it. They've, so the journalists are still out there doing their stuff, but editors on the Washington Post have got their little robot and they've programmed this robot and they've fed in certain templates. So, for instance, um, they've got a, they'll have a, a, a mid-term congressional election 18 months from now, 20 months from now. So they'll have templates for that election coverage, which will have basic things in, and they'll have a program that when they'll hook it into the data from particular uh, suppliers of election night counting data, and it will then spit out various stories based on Republicans winning, Democrats winning. Um, and it won't just put out a story, it will put out a range of different stories for different consumer targets and platforms. Is this what Fairfax has been using for the past 24 hours? <laughs> There's a few names popping up that I'd never heard I've of. I've never heard of them either, and funnily enough, they're in Melbourne and Sydney at the same time. And, and a number of very, very long stories from the Washington Post. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The same, what might be the robot over there. Look, I, I mean, uh, they, they, these things are unavoidable, you know. It's not like, it's not, there's, there's no room for, for Luddites mm -hmm. here. But what there is room for is honest and intelligent information and debate and genuine attempts to engage the thinking people of a population to help try to fashion responses. I mean, I wrote a, a series of features for a now defunct Sydney newspaper called The Sun, a five-part series of features on the future of computers in 1971, <laughs> in banking, in health, in education, and so on. Uh, and I spoke, it's stuck in my mind ever since. I, I interviewed a sociologist who had been a computer program, a programmer. So he understood computers back in 1971. And here's the thing that I will never forget. He said, this is the future projection of the development of computers. It's gonna take off like a rocket and it's go, gonna go off into that sky. And this is the social, our capacity to match it with social development. And it's gonna be going like this. Now, is that not exactly what's happened? Have we ever been able to say that we understand where we're being taken 
and how we're planning for the, out, for the fallout. To actually seize the benefits by the throat, make the most of them, direct them in the best way possible by the best combination of markets and government, uh, but at the same time, always being mindful of the social implications and impact and plan for them. So he said, part of the fear of the future is that you will have fewer people in jobs and they will be working longer. On the one hand, they'll be the ones being paid and they, those with the fingers on the button, will have the power and then there'll be the rest and there'll be a bigger lot of them than them and they will, they'll have a lot more leisure time on their hands, but what capacity will they have to be spending it? How much resentment will build up over here against them? Now, how do you get around that? You have to have, ultimately, some kind of accommodation where, where jobs are shared in a smart way, um, where, where the limits of that job sharing are reached. There is some other smart way of accommodating the rest of society so you do not have, in the end, revolution, dysfunction, um, uh, uh, subjugation. So where is that debate? I don't see anyone in the, in the uh, IT industry, uh, in the digital industry. I don't see anyone in Silicon Valley leading that conversation. Not in academia. No. I th look, the universities have lost their way. Where are the universities talking about the jobs, the shape of jobs 15 years from now. We can't really say, but we can try. I mean, kids are being pumped through uh, degrees uh, where they were told there would be a job at the end of it, for sure. Now, if the academics teaching them are asked and say, yes, of course, there'll be a job for you, then they're either deluded or they're lying in their teeth. That what, what is happening is that students are being urged to do double degrees or they're being urged to do their masters. And there are kids out there who've done their double degrees or done their masters and still haven't got jobs in the career that they thought they were training for. There are kids being told, well, you might do better, you might be a more attractive option in the marketplace if you get your masters in Europe. It'll sound better. See, it's interesting because the, the word that did not get a mention last night and it appears to have been banished, perhaps because of a fear of association to do with 2014 and the subsequent leadership uh, change, is innovation. Mm. Didn't, it, was, it was as if we were back in 1975, yeah. um, the sort of areas uh, with the exception of immigration. Sally, I've always, uh, it's, it, I've always been frustrated um, in conversations people have about innovation. I have sat through conference after conference after yeah. conference where people talk about innovation. And I, I never see them actually getting down to what that really means in concrete terms. And it's a buzzword. And some people innovate. You know, there are natural innovators. There are, there are cultures of innovation which produce things. But, um, but I don't... I, I think that when I heard Malcolm... Turnbull outlining uh, his program for innovation and there's always an amount of money attached to it. I thought, how long will this take to disappear? Well, I, I'm glad it's disappeared because it drove me nuts too. But uh, I'm surprised it, because it was such a big part. I mean, Obama was the other politician mm. that used it as frequently, I think, as Turnbull well, did. They're and, right. Uh, they're right. But, it's just but, that they but, don't know what to do But they've just it. borrowed the word. Mm. They don't. Where are the policies that they can point to and say it's done this and it's done that and this is, this is, this is what's germinating and these are the exciting think tanks that it... I mean, uh, Labor had what they called the clever centres. They were the institutes, the clever institutes. And I think they were actually, a lot of them, I don't, I don't you know, like everyone else, I guess, I've, apart from those who are still in them, those that still exist... They were attempting to do real things, and I think some of them actually delivered things. But, but um, it's, it's a buzzword. And the problem with today's politics, it's like, you look at this budget. We're told there's a $75 billion bonanza on infrastructure. So somehow, uh, Scott Morrison has found, and, and we're going to go back to surplus in four years, but we're going to spend $75 billion on infrastructure. We're going to have the train line running up the, up the you know, out the, out the back from... Melbourne up to Brisbane, 
we're going to have a train line here and something's in Western Australia and something's in Queensland, something's in New South Wales. Mm. I think even South Australia did. I don't know about Tasmania. I think, I think even, Tasmania even Victoria. Missed out again. Yeah, no, it's Victoria that misses out, Kerry. No, yeah. Victoria's got here? something. Yeah. I think you've got something. Oh, no, we have to, <laughs> we have to pay for it. We, but, he, but, but here's the thing, Sally. How much of that money is new? Mm. And how much has just been regurgitated from Joe Hockey's big infrastructure plans? And is it just that Scott Morrison is going to be a better seller, salesman of, uh, of the, the, you know, the infrastructure age? Um, so, and it's over 10 years. So it's not, it's, the 75 billion is over 10 years. How many of those projects are going to come to fruition? Because I, I lost track of, uh, some of them at least are going to rely on feasibility studies. There's an awful lot of feasibility studies that end up collecting dust. So I'm sorry if I'm sounding cynical, and to me it's not cynicism. I hope I've always been driven, like any decent journalist, by scepticism. But they've all got form. You know, I've watched them doctoring budgets forever. They've been playing numbers games forever. And uh, every time you sit in the lockup, and I haven't done it, thank God, for six years now, but, uh, but every time you sit in the lockup, along with the actual uh, budget papers, you get a pile this thick of departmental press releases, all designed to go out to different electorates and, you know, and the members come and line up like sheep and collect their press statements and make sure that they're disseminated in their electorate. Uh, and invariably, you know, it's, Im it's impossible to get the true picture, even with a six-hour lock-up or whatever it is on budget day, to get a true picture of any budget. You have to wait uh, for the smart ones, the really smart ones, the Ross Gittinses and Peter Martins and others, to just delve through and delve through, and those people who have constituents who are going to be affected to do their job too, like the welfare sector and so on, uh, and actually look for the truth behind the smoke and mirrors. And uh, that's just a part of the modern game. I, I think uh, contemporary government is about letting countries just tick along. I always remember that was it the 17 days with Gillard and Abbott and, you know, everything just went beautifully with no government at all, that wouldn't it be terrific if each government could come in and just say, I'm going to just work on one thing hmm. and I'm going to make it really, really great. Uh, that would be my Isn't method. That, but you know what? That's terrible, Sally, because there are enormous challenges out there. But we enormous can't... challenges... To think that we would be content to see a government settle on one thing and do it well, but that's depressing. <laughs> well, but wouldn't it but, be, but wouldn't it know, be amazing? I know, what you're saying. I know <laughs> I why mean, you're saying it. What, what is one thing, what is one problem that has been solved in the last 15 years? Well, uh, give Gillard... The NDIS. Give the NDIS. Gillard the big tick yeah. on the NDIS. Yeah, that's the... And, and this government, give them the tick for being bipartisan about accepting it, yeah. but then screaming unfunded, unfunded... OK, so maybe I should stretch my expectation to governments, <laughs> one thing. Uh, but... Well, uh, and, and so, you know, give credit to this lot for now. And, and there, you know, there are, there are potentially good things in the budget. What, I don't think What do doubt. you like? That was well, going to be... Well, th I think that most Australians... Properly explain to them, most Australians with the capacity to afford it would not cavil at the idea of having their Medicare levy increased uh, if they can see two things. One, that health is an incredibly expensive industry, a cost burden, uh, and that, that uh, I don't know that you will ever see a, a properly efficient health system in any country. I think ours is as good as... Most, it's, it's better than most, better than most. Better than most. Mm. Um, but the, the fact is that if we want to continue uh, to enjoy the health system we have, then at some point, whether it comes via a levy or some other form of raising money, uh, that we will have to shell out more for it. Now, at the same time, uh, I, I think governments have got to be vigilant about containing costs, again, in an intelligent, targeted way, uh, where, where you've got excessive or unnecessary or unacceptable profit-taking. And, I mean, here's something else to do with health. Every year, one of the things, it's, it is as reliable as Christmas, that every year the, health, the private health funds are going to be given the nod by the health minister to increase their 
their premiums by somewhere between, I don't know, 5 and 8%. It's always more than inflation. Uh, and it's, it's like a given. Now, you know, if they were here, they'd reel out page, you know, volumes of uh, justification for that. And much of it may be true. It may all be true for all I know. But governments, of course, have to be vigilant about, about keeping... The, you've still got to be... No good having the most beneficial health system in the world if we simply cannot afford it. And I mean genuinely can't afford it. It's, um, it's an area where I think people understand the complexity, that not just that it's complex, mm. but they actually, uh, you know, are pretty well informed. And, you know, that when you think about the Medicare rebate with GPs that, mm. that, that has been put through in this budget, which it's... A, and nobody's arguing against that, mm. that um, it'll be probably broadly accepted. Now, that is a policy that exists to put more money in the pockets of GPs. Mm. A remarkable uh, uh, thing that um, it, it couldn't be dragged away by misleading headlines or, and so on, that people understand that as a policy, the benefits to them as patients, mm. um, it, it's, and, and it, it'll probably go through. Why I'm, I, I'll give this as an example because it's a rare example mm. of, uh, and this goes back to something like John Howard trying to get the GST in. Difficult political uh, things that require time and require explanation, and in this case, it's managed to have been done. But then people are treated like absolute imbeciles in so many other areas in the way they're spoken to hmm. uh, by, by politicians. Hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, not surprising, I, I mean, I, I thought the random drug testing unemployed people uh, was... Um, it's such so, a complex... It is such a complex area. Exactly. And this, this sort of... Uh, some unemployed people are taking drugs. Some unemployed people drink a lot. And so do some, some unemployed people. Some unemployed people are mentally ill. Some unemployed people are depressed. Uh, some unemployed people turn to one prop or another uh, as a form of escape. Uh, even if you could justify the idea that they have proposed of starting with a sample test of some young unemployed people to see if they're on drugs... Uh, what faith can you have in a welfare system that it, that will be done uh, in a compassionate and thoughtful way, sensitive way, when that same system has thrown so many people callously off welfare uh, uh, without justification simply because the system was a stuff-up? And, and, and how much faith can you have... For instance, when this government says, as part of its um, attempt to persuade people that we don't need a Royal Commission on banks, it says we are going to have this, uh, going to create this force within the ACCC uh, whose job it will be to examine uh, competition within the banks. Well, banking regulators have failed significantly on a number of fronts as exposed mostly by Fairfax, all by newspapers, um, mostly by Adele Horan, actually. Ad not Adele Horan, dear old, the late, great Adele Horan, but Adele Ferguson. Um, where uh, the banks, uh, senior employees within the banks were essentially cheating, misadvising, sources of uh, people losing their life savings and so on, uh, regulation failed there. Regulation has failed in the banking system on a number of fronts now. Why? Is it that there is a lack of resolve? Is it that it's not properly resourced? So the ACCC idea might be a perfectly good idea, but is it going to be properly resourced and will it have the resolve? And then if it comes up with... Uh, with uh, stories of poor competition, is it going to be able to enforce a greater degree of competition? So the, the, when the mere act of something like that being announced does not mean it's going to happen or that it's going to happen effectively. Mm. 
Yeah, it it was the 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 drug testing one, but it was like you know the the, the ticking the boxes of uh, that you know it just sounded like a deal, well, that, didn't that, it? That you know if you want to if you really want to take it to its most cynical, is this Malcolm and uh, Scott's sop to the right? It sort of felt like it. I wouldn't want to be that cynical, but gee, it felt like it. <laughs> and it was the only one. It was the only. Mm. Um, well, I was going to ask you next what you really didn't like, but... Uh... <laughs> what I really didn't like? Yeah. Fundamentally, I just uh, find it depressing that, uh, that so much of what is being produced in the name of policy is really driven by politics. And, you know, um, uh, <laughs> I'm still suffering my Paul Keating withdrawals after... <laughs> the, the television series and then the book. Uh, but it was Keating who said, good policy more often than not is also good politics. Mm. But you've got to have the people who are able to explain that and sell it and bring people along. And then you've got to show that the policy works. I was actually, I'm diverting for a second here, but I was interested... Oh, if you're going recently. to talk about Keating, we can... No, no, this divert. is only a second. I was just, you see here, when, when people, uh, when people, when politicians apply such certitude to their pronouncements. Uh, and so neoliberalism and, and neoliberalism as it was applied, or rationalist economics as it was applied in those labour years of reform, which was, in fairness to them, a different form to Margaret Thatcher's, because it came with companion policies that were designed to pick up those who might have, been, might have fallen out or fallen over as a result of reforms. Um, there was social policy that was attempting to be aligned with economic policy. But there was uh, Paul Keating recently, after the new head of the ACTU, whose name uh, temporarily escapes me, when she made that uh, speech at the press club and talked about uh, uh, her, the way she, she saw her job. And in defence of her over the stick she copped for saying, for talking about... Um, um, I think it might have been an illegal strike she was talking of, justifying That's it. right. And breaking the law uh, on bad policy. There was this very brief um, story quoting Paul Keating as saying, well, the truth is that neoliberal economics uh, has run out of the answers. It doesn't have the answers. And uh, I must say, um, I'm very interested to go back and have another conversation with him because... Uh, I, I think there are some obvious things behind that. Mm. And if that's failed, that was the new ism, and if that has failed, then what is going to replace it that's mm. going to actually be positive for us all? That was my diversion. Oh, he was on the radio here last week, and he... Oh, he one of those great... He said, you know, you've got to be on the train. You can't be on the caboose. <laughs> <laughs> I just... How do you, you know, how do you come up with that? Like, it, of course you can't be on the caboose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even if you don't understand what he's talking about... You love it it's, anyway. It's, it's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's so tantalising, you've got to go away and it, find out. It was, it was just... Uh, I mean, I, I remember his was 93 uh, election night speech and he talked about... You know, if you're unemployed, you know, we're going to reach out. We're going to put our arms around you, I think he actually yeah. said. And, uh, I mean, it, those... Mind you, he was also quite capable, if you remember, in one of those election campaigns, was it 93 or... 90? 93, I think, where uh, he's walking through a crowd of people uh, at some place where he's made an appearance and some guy's heckling him from the side and over his shoulder he says, get a job. <laughs> They're always soft and cuddly when they win, aren't they? Or retire. Uh, the Liberals loved that image. They used it very effectively. Yeah. It might have been 96. Where do they go? Um, I mean, I, you know, this is obviously speculation, but there's, you know, obviously going to be a budget next year and presumably an election the year after. Next year's <laughs> might be the last budget before an election year, if they uh, go a bit early. Uh, prob mm. Yeah, when was it? June, July. Yeah. Yeah. Where, well, where, it'll, it'll depend how they're travelling, Sally. Yes. <laughs> well, what does Labor do? What does Shorten do? Well, this is the thing. 
It's not. I, I thought that uh, what little I saw of uh, of Bowen last night, Chris Bowen, uh, he didn't sound pathetic. That was that would be too harsh a judgment. But he sounded he, he sounded some, like somebody who had nowhere to go. Mm. You know, he was he was his challenge was a tiny bit shrill, uh, and he was saying it's pathetic on this, it's hopeless on that. They haven't done this. They haven't done what they're saying. So they've got to actually get down to tin tacks now, and find the flimsiness in this budget where they can. Uh, but, but where they had the Turnbull government on the run was on policy. And for a brief moment there on issues like negative gearing, a political party was leading a necessary debate on a critical issue, which was housing affordability. They were making sense. And people who weren't their natural constituents were responding to that. And the defensive response of the Liberals was to go into a huddle and say, of course, negative gearing's hopeless, it'll be a disaster, and, and instantly put themselves into a corner from which they're still... Mm. Um, you know, they, they sort of opened the door a little crack and threw out a tiny bit of a fiddle with negative gearing. There are so many things. Sally, <clears throat> housing affordability... I was looking out some old Four Corners programs the other day, believe it or not, and it's not, I'm not so pathetic... As I, as I sit on my little ridge inland from Byron Bay, that I'm reduced to looking at old Kerry O'Brien <laughs> stories. I'm actually writing a book, and this is helping my memory somewhat. There in 1976 was a story I'd done on housing affordability in Australia, and I can tell you pretty much most of the same issues that are going now were going then. And there were, uh, there were policy responses to some of those things, some of which were seen to work, but then the next government would come in and throw them out and do something else. I mean, there are so many of these big issues that just keep recycling. And, uh, and, and there is a, if, there, if there is one amongst many fundamental failures in Australian politics, it is the capacity or the, the passion that incoming governments seem to have for throwing out the policies of, other, of the previous governments. And, uh, and sometimes they'll retain something that has virtue, but sometimes in the sort of search and destroy that goes on, good things get thrown out with bad. And that's one of the great negatives, I think, of what our system has become. But, uh, but on how, and, and one of the one difference with housing uh, was that in 1976, Jennings, who I assume are still still going, I don't know, but Jennings were the biggest home biggest project home builder in Australia. Then there were suburbs here they were developing in Melbourne that we went along to. They were shrinking the size of houses. They were getting houses down to something like nine squares, very basic. Well, we've now gone through the era of the McMansion. Have you got them as much in Melbourne as they got them in Sydney? Yeah, and ours massive. sprawl out to yes. some other country. Almost. And they take, up, they take up almost every square metre of available space on the block. They are energy inefficient. They're on but big mortgages. But they've all got tennis courts. <laughs> no, That's not the all thing I've never understood, why you'd need 100 tennis courts on one street. Hmm. So um, housing affordability... One of, the, one of the really significant reasons right at this minute why house prices, uh, residential prices are being driven up in the capital cities, particularly Sydney and Melbourne, is because of foreign investment. The Foreign Investment Review Board just in the last couple of days has, has uh, produced some figures from last year. The total, the total foreign investment that was seeking approval in 2015-2016 was $248 million. And, and that $248 million included 55... It, it was up. It was an increase of $55 million on the previous year. And the vast bulk of that $55 million was residential housing. Um, I forget the precise figures... But something like 70% of that 55 million, a billion... I was going to say... Billion, it's oh, I've been saying like, million. Yeah, yeah. 55 be billion. billion. Yep. That 70% 70, 70 of that 55 billion has gone uh, into real estate, uh, residential real estate in Sydney and Melbourne. And most of it is for properties under a million dollars. Now, are these not the same properties that first-home buyers are seeking? And what is that doing to prices? That is a real fundamental challenge for state, but particularly for the federal government, to deal with. 
So, and that is just one issue. So they're nibbling at the edges of these things, but, and the, the, um, uh, the business about uh, allowing young people to save into their super fund. So it takes 60 years instead of well, 90. Somebody pointed out that uh, two years of savings, uh, getting up to 60,000 mm. of, of both couple, each, each saving, so a couple saves 30,000 a year for two years, 60,000, that would pay for the stamp duty. Mm. And there aren't many couples that can actually live and save $30,000, you know, uh, even between them. The thing that absolutely gets me in the gut is, and I've lived long enough now to be able to say this, I have seen so many moments in my lifetime, my, my alert lifetime as an adult, um, so many moments... Uh, to be proud of what this nation has been capable of doing, and then so many where we've slipped back, so many opportunities presented and offered, and even political leadership identifying opportunities and challenges and things to do, that you think, yes, that's right, that will be good, that's enlightening, that's going to make us uh, a more interesting and better nation, and then we slide back again. And I just think that our, our, our whole political system has become so much about short-termism, political careers... Um, a real incapacity and, and for blind ambition. ...bad news. You know, this idea that, that people can't cop uh, a bit of honest... Uh, you know, that, that uh, things don't necessarily have to always be bigger and, and better to actually be better. It's a very complex world we're in, and the digital age is an age of the most intense change, I think, that civilization has experienced, and that is only get, going to get more intense and more complicated in a way. But the, the, the way in which the Googles and the Amazons and the, and the iPhones, the Apples, rather, uh, and others are just taking off, they're, 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 like, they're like floating nations. And they are beyond the wit of countries like Australia, it seems, to actually not control, but to even have much of a say in what they do and how they're going to impact on our lives. And uh, they may say, you know, Zuckerberg might make soft noises about, you know, caring about humanity and wanting an open society, but uh, he has unleashed an animal there that even he... Um, doesn't really understand how, how to kind of control or, you know, the, the, the business about fake news and about the way in which, uh, the way in which um, Facebook uh, has been exploited by particular forces at work uh, to completely muddy the waters on things like an American presidential race um, and the, the extent to which people's access to news via Facebook uh, is is simply giving them what they want to hear. You know, the whole, the, the creation of this, this uh, consp you know, the world of plots mm. um, and conspiracies run mad uh, and the capacity of, of, uh, of legitimate, quality, well-sourced uh, journalistic uh, outlets are struggling I mean, the New York Times at least can defend its base because it's got a global market. It's got a global market and a global brand. So the New York Times can sell subscriptions online around the world. For a start, it's got a market in America of over 300 million people it can sell to, and then it's got billions, potentially. I mean, I read the New York Times almost as much as the New York Times and the Washington Post almost as much as I read Australian papers. Cool. Yeah, but the Herald can't do that. Mm. The Herald doesn't have a global mm. brand. It doesn't even have a regional mm. brand. So it's, it's got almost nowhere to go. Advertisers are showing a complete disinclination, or almost complete disinclination, to come across online <coughs> with Fairfax as it tries to, to, to move away from, uh, from, a printed, um, from printed mastheads to a digital world. And they simply aren't going to be able to make it work on subscriptions alone. So that, that is a, that's got huge ramifications for Australia. I'm unclear as to how the, this 
this policy, the media policy that the Turnbull government had been sitting on for so long before they finally threw it out a couple of days ago, as Channel 10 is about to go bankrupt and Fairfax is struggling. <clears throat> I still don't know how that policy is actually going to help Fairfax survive and prosper. Mm. I know it's going to help Rupert Murdoch. Mm. And Zuckerberg's response to this Facebook uh, issue is to run for president, it seems. Feels like it. Yeah, well, he's almost ready. <laughs> he's, he's 50 The first sense you're wearing president. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question and a microphone lands in your hand, speak up. Yes. Kerry, David Buckingham. Uh, my question is, uh, fundamentally, what is the responsibility of the media in all this? If I go right back to your original observation around surpluses and deficits and look at the assumptions that are articulated in the budget last night, just to take one, uh, the real income assumption uh, was uh, current, it is currently 1.5% per annum growth. Um, they assume 2.5% for the current period, rising above 3%. That's right. It calls into question the credibility of the whole model that the budget is based on. My question is, why is the media not exposing this for what it is? Well, they do. They, they write it. You'll find it... I mean... Uh, Chris Richardson had a piece inside the back page of the Fin Review yesterday um, about the magic disappearing surplus that turns up every four years, you know, that's going to arrive every four years. Uh, <coughs> the, the people, like, uh, people like Ross Gittins, does the age run Gittins? Yep. Yeah. Uh, people like Ross Gittins and Peter Martin uh, are terrific, and, uh, and there are others who are terrific at sort of delving through that stuff and actually explaining it in lay terms. But um, one of the disturbing things to me about modern politics and, and, and in a way, the media um, becoming certainly less powerful or less influential, if not losing their, their capacity very significantly, is that often I have seen uh, a bad headline, uh, a negative issue for a government, a seriously negative issue in some instances, where the government's blindsided by something, or a bank is blindsided by something, uh, or, in, or an institution is blindsided by something, and somebody, some smart person inside the system says, just sit it out, don't give it oxygen. Make your, make your basic defence and then duck. Find distractions, um, find ways to divert attention and wait for it to go away. And sadly, often it does. Um, that's, that's a part of uh, a truth of what's going on. And uh, a media where journalists are being asked to do more, I mean, the extent to which journalists are now um, feeding several voracious beasts at the one time, I think print journalists who once upon a time really had, um, had one deadline and uh, if a story was a breaking... and that de Let's say it's a morning newspaper. That deadline might have been 8 o'clock at night, 7 o'clock at night uh, for the first edition, and that would be it unless that story was a running story and there was a chance of something breaking later, so you had to stay live, and you could then feed that into a, f a fight. I mean, dear, dear Michelle Grattan, one of Australia's great institutions, I can remember in the 1977 election campaign in Queenstown... Uh, Western Tasmania, uh, Michelle, as we were coming back from a late dinner, and I don't mean we started early, I mean we were all filing, and we're coming back late in a campaign bus, and there was Michelle in the cold of, of Queenstown at about one o'clock in the morning in a phone booth <laughs> filing mm. for the last edition of The Age. That would just never happen now. Mm. But instead of that... Those same journalists, or their equivalent today... They don't get dinner. If a story breaks, they've got to file instantly, mm. whether it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon or 3 o'clock or whatever, nine, 11 o'clock in the morning. And, and so there, there are constant distractions for the, for the serious-minded journalist who wants to give you the best analysis, who wants to give you uh, the best array of proven fact uh, that they can... 
their efforts uh, are being diluted. Their, their capacity to actually deliver what you're asking is diluted. It doesn't let us off the hook completely at all. And, uh, and I think that the, the, uh, the temptation to slide across the top is always there. Uh, I think that the skills base is declining. Those sort of wise older heads that carried a lot of, a lot of history in their heads and new old tricks. A lot of those, of course, have been redundant, or as they've retired, have not. That the people coming along who would be their natural successors have been redundant, and so that the mix in in newsrooms that applied uh, for most of my years in journalism until say the last ten, uh, where younger journalists coming through had others that they could learn from. There were, I mean, when I started in journalism. Instinctively, I was looking around for mentors. I was interested in shortcuts. Not silly shortcuts, but I was interested in learning as quickly as I could. And where do you do that? Apart from on the job, you learn it from somebody who's been there before you. Well, there is now a disproportionate number of people in newsrooms. They might be very smart, but they're young and relatively inexperienced. And the people who might otherwise have been assisting them with the corporate memory are not there, or many less of them are. Uh, thank you. Uh, one conspiracy you have missed, and it was uh, mentioned in the 1880s, that I wasn't are, there then. No, true, <laughs> nor I. But uh, governments are committees designed to run the uh, affairs of the rich. So let's fast forward to the 1980s, and I've been trying to get commentators such as you two to write about the uh, real unemployment figures which now is about mm. two million or one vacancy for 20 unemployed. But I, ha I have failed. And I, the point is that uh, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So why have I failed with commentators such as yourself to get you to write about the real unemployment figures? Because the monthly figures are as dodgy as an Arthur Daly used car warranty. There you go, you've asked. Beautiful, <laughs> you did okay. it. <laughs> Uh, again, John Hewson, not a journalist, but he's a columnist. He's an interesting figure, Hewson. He doesn't sound to me like the same John Hewson I knew uh, 20 years ago. He's been a guest here and yeah. uh, fantastic talker. Well, Hewson talks about the issue of, of unemployment and underemployment and employment statistics. Uh, and he was talking about jobs and growth too, and he was saying very similar things to what I've been saying for a long time now about, about the nature of work. And that when people... When Trump is promising jobs, you know, once he builds his wall with Mexico that he's not going to build, whatever jobs, you know, if that wall was going to be built and if there were jobs created there, of course those jobs disappear again. Uh, he's not creating permanent jobs when he's doing that, even if he does it. Um, but uh, I think Houston's, one of Houston's points was that if, uh, if unemployment right now is somewhere around... Um, actually, this was back in February he wrote this, but... So the unemployment then was something, the official unemployment was 5.8%. And, uh, and youth unemployment, officially, was 13%. And uh, he said that underemployment, that is, people who uh, had part-time work but wanted more work, uh, were being deprived of being able to work what you might call normal hours or a full-time job, was at least twice the unemployment figure, so another 11%. So there was 15 or 16%, and I don't know how closely that matches what you're talking, probably not quite that. The bottom line is, yes, of course you're right. Hidden employment has been a, a factor for as long as I've been covering politics. Um, and not always, because governments are intent on hiding true pictures. I think sometimes it's... Uh, I don't know what the... I think there are problems in collecting data, but nonetheless, to try and address your fundamental point. Uh, again, uh, I think the coverage is there, but it's patchy. Uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of issues out there on the, the landscape of your average journalist's average day. And I, I, I know even for a program like 7.30, I mean, we would fit four programs, uh, four stories into a program on a night. So you think of the canvas that we would start each day with uh, dealing, dealing, grappling with the with uh, the uh, uh, with the outlet of television, which is fundamentally a superficial media, trying to bring a little bit of depth to a, an essentially superficial medium. 
Um, there's only so many times you can do a story before your audience is going to turn away from you uh, if you keep saying the same thing in a different way. So, and in the daily Russian rough and tumble, sometimes things do get overlooked. It's not like an editor is sitting there at the top of the heap of a newspaper um, with this uh, sort of kaleidoscope of uh, stories uh, and they're saying, well, it's time we did that one again. Now, when was the last time we did, uh, did the fact that governments hide unemployment figures? Okay, it's time we did that. There's a certain amount of ad hocery about it, a great deal of ad hocery, in fact. And there are, there are also prejudices in the sense that uh, some editors or news directors in print and television will shy away from stories about Indigenous issues because they believe they're a turn-off. This is more true in commercial television than the ABC, but it is not absent completely at the ABC. Uh, environment issues, climate change, you know, Four Corners. The number of times Four Corners has been singled out by that small cabal of, uh, of uh, parrots who... Um, have only one thing to say but feel that if they just repeat it often enough some of it will stick. Uh, the number of times we've been accused of, of focusing on soft left issues so-called like climate change, like indigenous issues and so on. Um, the truth is how many times do we tell you know so we've done a story on climate change uh, at the end of 2016 do we update it at the end of 2017? I mean often it's a it's a kind of it's ad hoc. Wasn't in the budget. Might, hmm? Was not in the budget. It was no. another well, term that did not um, did not get a mention. The, the um, um, renewables did, mm. and I haven't really caught up with it. But uh, but here's climate change. You know, I scratched my head again this morning about this. A conservative government, the Howard government, introduced an emissions trading scheme ten years ago, and Labor came along. And, and Malcolm Turnbull was the environment minister who ticked off on it as the minister. And uh, Labor won that election. Uh, and uh, part of, of uh, Rudd's thrust, as we all know, the great moral issue of our time, was the ETS. Um, and here we are 10 years later and uh, we've had two further attempts to have a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme both failed, uh, and so you have, Mel you, have, you have John Howard bringing in an ETS and you have the Greens under Bob Brown rejecting an emissions trading scheme in the Senate. Go figure. And here we are, still, one of the huge issues facing, read again yesterday, the uh, Alaskan tundra where massive amounts of carbon are being released or are about to re be released as the ice, more ice is melting and staying, uh, and, and, staying and, and the ground staying thawed for longer. And, and uh, reputable scientists saying there is a serious risk that it's actually going to hasten the rate. Um, I'm just wanting to say that no wonder that nothing's done about um, the housing problem with the... Um, uh, I've forgotten the word, um, because um, in, like in, in government, in um, uh, council things, if you've got a conflict of interest, you're not allowed to vote. Mm. You're not in the room. Now, and this happens in quite a few places, why is it not in Canberra when they're making all this... Um, that because so many of the Canberrians have got lots and lots of houses that they're still allowed to be in the discussion and in the vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they were all put out, there would be... council would be half empty, the parliament would be half empty. Yeah. It, look, it's... Uh, Could it, be an idea of its time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Where do you start? <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know what, if you, if you were going to be a real purist about it, uh, and, and in terms of conflict of interest, um, if there was a discussion about food prices, we all eat food, you know, I think you've got to, you've got to apply a certain flexibility in that. I mean, I, you're fundamentally right that if somebody is sitting around a cabinet table 
and they have 15, a portfolio of 15 investment properties and they're intending to buy another 10, they have a conflict of interest. You're, you're fundamentally right. Um, that wouldn't be the only one either if you're applying that kind of benchmark. I don't know the answer to that, I really don't. But, and, uh, but it should be out there. And on that note, if we've finally found something Kerry doesn't know the answer to. Uh, oh, there's a lot more than that, Sally. We're going we're gonna to let you go back to beautiful Byron Bay and work on your book. And if you really promise to come back when it's finished and talk to us again, whatever it's about. <laughs> I do. I oh, will. good. <laughs> Please thank Kerry O'Brien. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Fifth Estate podcast. As always, you'll find lots more podcasts, videos, writing and events to feed your brain and your appetite for mischief at wheelercentre.com. Please, if you value this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or show a friend how to subscribe. Thanks. We'll be back very soon with more. Until then, take care. <laughs>